1959, nine skiers mysteriously disappeared in the northern Urals. Weeks later, the frozen corpses were found scattered around Kolat Saki, a range the indigenous Mansi referred to as the Mountain of Death. What ultimately happened to those hikers has baffled investigators for decades. The campsite was found in relatively pristine condition, with the supplies unmoved or damaged. The only foreboding sign was a large knife slash across a tent. The skiers made to cut their way to the outside. Startled, the group hurriedly abandoned their belongings, most without wearing any clothes, and ran into the cold. The remains were discovered more than a mile away in various stages of contortion. While six died of hypothermia, three died from being crushed by a force only described as greater than human. Two bodies fractured their skulls, had missing eyebrows, and picked out eyes. One body's tongue was ripped out. Strangest of all, their clothing carried trace signs of radioactivity. Stymied Soviet government officials could only conclude that the skiers died from a, quote, natural force they were unable to overcome. The rest of their findings were sealed off for the public. Questions led to speculation, and speculation naturally leads to conspiracies. For the next six decades, bizarre accusations, ranging from the curiosity absurd, were floated around. Potential culprits have included covert Soviet missile tests, aliens, and even Yeti attacks. The seemingly unknowable answer has been screaming out at toddlers and their irritated parents for years. Regretfully, the 2013 movie, Frozen, was a cultural phenomenon. The musical became only the fourth Disney soundtrack to hit number one in the studio's near century of hits. The breakout single, The Deathless Let It Go, became only the fifth Disney song to reach the top ten, and the first since Pocahontas 18 years earlier. It also did something that no other Disney movie song had ever done before. It helped solve a 63-year-old cold case. One day, Johan Gomb was zoning out during yet another of his kids' mindless rewatches. Gome was taken by how fluid Elsa could move the snow with her powers. Inspired by Frozen's accurate depictions, Gome visited the movie's animators. Gome had long believed that the hikers died in an avalanche, despite searchers not seeing any signs of an avalanche at the pass. He could not prove his theory without recreating the elements of that night. By using the animators' codes, Gome's simulation showed that a block of ice no bigger than an SUV could have triggered an avalanche while also keeping the remaining area undisturbed. With that discovery, all of the mysterious elements clicked into place. While the group was sleeping in the tent, downslope winds pushed a large chunk of snow onto their camp. To quickly escape danger, the victims fled in various states of undress. Disoriented, they staggered around the mountainside until they sadly succumbed to the cold. Scavenging animals fed off their exposed eyes and tongues. The curious radiation was thorium leak from an upturned lanterns. Disney's fantastical story brought the crime back to reality. It was no Yeti or alien. The nine trackers were simply caught up in the elements. The incident at Dietlow Pass has no supernatural mystery to hold on to. It's just a sad fate of people at the wrong time and the wrong place. Well, now they know. Let it go. Hi, this is Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman. With me is the Robert Stack of Charleston Community Radio, Nate Youngman. This week, we are going to solve some unsolved music-related mysteries. First up, Devil in Disguise. You're the devil in 
the sky Oh yes you are Devil in the sky Elvis's untimely death in 1977 shocked a generation. More than a decade after his death, mourners still channeled their grief into pop hits. In 1989, the Bangles hit number one with Eternal Flame, a song inspired by watching a vigil at Elvis's gravesite. A year later, Alana Miles repeated that chart peak with 1990's Black Velvet. Miles' only major hit somberly reflects on what is lost when a cultural giant dies with unfinished work. Other artists took up the challenge in his place. We talked about the failed career of one of those wannabes, Orion, in our second episode. Other musicians found greater success. Songs initially written to give to Elvis were reworked into smashes once Elvis was obviously no longer available to record them. These included the biggest hits of Jimmy Buffett, Wasting away And the Pointer Sisters. The only reason Elvis had so many hits in his death was because he was a legend in life. The man responsible for that transformation, manager Colonel Tom Parker, was certainly pleased that his client was so fondly remembered. It's just the same that he killed him. Don't be cruel to who hard it's true. In 1955, Tom Parker discovered a young truck driver with the right snarl and swagger to become a star. Within months, Parker secured for his new act, Elvis Presley, a recording contract with RCA Victor Records. Yet, as Parker's death, rock critic Dave Marsh blasted Parker as the most overrated person in the history of show business. Parker was all those things and potentially more. His combination of bluster and ego forever changed the music world. Whether it was for the better or worse, it's hard to say. Besides discovering Elvis, Tom Parker made another major discovery. You could get crazy rich in the music business. A generation older than the teens Parker targeted, he was more interested in marketing than music. He built people out of their money no matter what they thought of rock and roll. Before concerts, he sold I Love Elvis buttons to the fans and I Hate Elvis buttons to the picketers. Money is money and the colonel was certainly getting his share. It's estimated that Elvis earned more than a billion dollars over the course of his career. A nice chunk of that flowed Parker's way. In a time where most managers took 10 to 15% of their clients' revenue, Parker tricked Elvis into an unheard of 25% cut. In 1960, Parker's fee rose to an incredible 50%. Parker's greed was cartoonishly evil, or at times just plain cartoonish. In 1974, Elvis was too busy touring to release any new music, so Parker decided to put out a live album. The problem with the plan was that RCA Victor Records owned the rights to all of the Elvis catalog. Releasing any music would require paying royalties. So he self-released an album through his own label. The only way Parker could do that was to distribute an album without any actual music on it. That's exactly what Parker did. 1974's Having Fun with Elvis on Stage, it is incoherent gibberish of stammering stories, contextless jokes, and aimless humming like this. I'm the NBC Peacock. I hope you have a good time this afternoon. The con climbed all the way to number nine on the country charts. Nothing captures the extent of Parker's greed than his response to Elvis's death. Upon hearing that a man he spent 20 years of his life with, his immediate reaction was, how much money did I just lose? Mm, shameless. 
at Elvis's funeral, an event he attended dressed in Hawaiian shirt and baseball cap, by the way. Now that I like. <laughs> he persuaded Elvis's father to sign over the rest of Presley's estate to him. In 1980, Tennessee prosecutors investigated Parker's management. He was stripped of his title of manager for overreaching his fiduciary responsibilities and unethical self-dealing. Duh. Who couldn't see that coming? Yeah. Strangely for such a massive celebrity, little is known about the man who became Colonel Tom Parker. His name does not appear in any public records until he joined the Army as a private in World War I. The biographical information he told the recruiter was vague at best. He stated that he was born around 1900 in Huntington, West Virginia. Had anyone checked, they would have discovered that no child with that name was born in the area at that time, nor did the name Tom Parker match any passports or government records. The man who became Tom Parker was actually born Andreas Cornelius von Cook in Breda, Netherlands. At 17, he hopped a freighter to the United States to make his fortune. He did join the Army, and while stationed in Hawaii, he took the name of his commanding officer, Tom Parker, as his own. At some point after leaving the service, Parker joined the Great Parker Pony Circus under the stage name Tom Parker and his Dancing Turkeys. The wannabe carny achieved regional fame with a sadistic routine where he shot chickens with electrical wires to make them dance. Hmm. But not turkeys. Yeah, false advertisement. <laughs> Later in his career, the carny instincts Parker developed influenced how he managed musical talent. He thought of singers as not unlike a sideshow attraction, a commodity to be packaged and reshaped before the fad faded. He applied that mindset to managing some of the best-known country acts of the 1940s, such as Minnie Pearl, Eddie Arnold, and Hank Snow. During this time, he helped singer-turned-politician Jimmy Davis during his Louisiana gubernatorial run. After Davis won the election, he bestowed Parker with the honorary rank of colonel in the Louisiana State Militia. From that day on, Parker went by the colonel. Throughout his adult life, Parker lived in extreme paranoia and secrecy. He never talked about his Dutch upbringing to Presley or any client. The colonel was so close-chested that his stepson, Bobby Ross, died without ever learning the true identity of the man who reared him. As an illegal immigrant living under an assumed name, Parker had a legitimate reason to keep a low profile. However, to carry on to the extent that he did, suggests that something darker happened in the Netherlands. It would have to be something terrible, something like murder. <gasps> For liability reasons, we are not going to say that Tom Parker was a killer on the lam. Yeah, that would be Colonel Slanders. <laughs> there just so happened to be an unsolved mystery in Parker's hometown right before he fled the country. In May of 1929, 23-year-old newlywed Anna von den Eden was beaten to death behind her husband's grocery store. Eyewitnesses spotted a well-dressed man in a yellow suit fleeing the scene in a hurry. As an aside, if you're going to murder somebody, wearing a yellow suit is probably not the best way to do it. Yeah, shout out to uh, Curious George out there. <laughs> yeah. There's no way to know if the man who became Elvis's manager and Anna von den Eden's killer were one and the same. But Parker's profile certainly reads like a man with a guilty conscience. He was known in the community for always wearing fancy clothes, particularly his favorite color, yellow. The murder occurred only a few yards from where Parker's family home was. In his younger days, he was even paid to make deliveries for the Van Den Eden's grocery store. Perhaps coincidentally, the day that Anna was killed, Parker sailed for the United States. He left without telling his family or friends where he was headed, without taking his identity papers, money, or clothing. After leaving Breda, the only communication Parker had with his family suggests he left for some reason. In a letter to his nephew, he wrote that he didn't want to foist his troubles off on them. In 1961, his brother Ad visited Parker in America. Upon returning, Ad refused to share any details about Parker's new life beyond mentioning that he liked to paint sparrows yellow and sell them as canaries. Uh, why didn't he just buy canaries? Would save a lot of trouble. Um, this guy and birds. I mean, <laughs> what, a, what a weirdo. 
Perhaps the most damning evidence against Parker was an anonymous letter published in the Breda newspaper in 1980. The unsigned missive reads like a confession from someone with a personal knowledge of the parties involved. It ends with this shocking statement. At last, I want to say what was told to me 19 years ago about this Colonel Parker. My mother-in-law said to me, if anything comes to light about this Parker, tell them his name is Van Cook and that he murdered the wife of a greengrocer. Even with that letter, the case against Parker remains entirely circumstantial. Yet people close to Parker were convinced of his involvement. Lamar Fike, one of Elvis's closest friends, said that he doesn't think that there's any doubt he killed that woman. Parker's assistant, Byron Raphael, added that he had a terrible temper. He and I got into some violent, violent fights. In those fits of rage, he was a very dangerous man, certainly capable of killing. Parker's alleged involvement in the wife of the green grocer death goes a long way towards explaining the biggest mystery of Elvis's career. Despite being a global superstar, Presley only toured outside the United States three times, all in 1957 and all in Canada. During those three shows, Parker stayed behind in border cities like Seattle and Buffalo. After that, Parker consistently turned down offers for Presley to tour in Europe and Japan. The notoriously greedy man turned down an offer of $5 million for Elvis to perform in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis raised it to $10 million for just one concert, and Parker still refused. There had to be a good reason why the money-obsessed Parker would pass on such a lucrative opportunity. For the 20 years that Parker outlasted his greatest discovery, he lived with the allegations that he had destroyed him. Parker's constrictive contract suffocated Elvis. His will to perform was dead, but Elvis had to keep on playing a grueling schedule to pay off Parker's enormous debts. Parker had gambled away he and his client's fortune at Las Vegas casinos. The only way to make back this money was by putting on a show. From 1969 to 1976, Elvis gave 837 performances in Las Vegas. The physical and mental strain drove him to abuse prescription drugs. Elvis's personal physician, Dr. George C. Nicopoulos, provided him a daily dose of amphetamines and barbiturates. Between 1975 and 1971, the enabling doctor prescribed 19,000 doses of drugs for Elvis. In 1980, Nicopolis had his medical license suspended for over-prescribing medication. Unfortunately, the suspension came three years too late for Elvis. Colonel Tom Parker is an American original by way of the Netherlands. Had he been convicted or even questioned about the murder, he likely never would have had a chance to discover one of the most culturally significant persons of the 20th century. Some music historians doubt that Elvis could have ever broken nationally without Parker's guidance. Others think that Elvis was such a blazing comet of charisma that his success was inevitable. In all likelihood, neither man would have been as big in the field without the other. Like many hucksters before him, Parker realized that the promotion of a curiosity was just as important as the curiosity itself. While we should all be grateful Elvis and Parker got together, Elvis might have had his regrets. He died in 1997, still trying to cash in on an artist he worked to death 20 years earlier. Parker undeniably got away with murder. The only question is, how many lives? And I am just a devil with love and spare So Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, Dad, that was a pretty convincing argument you had there. You know, if you're trying to keep a low profile, maybe not hang out with the most famous person on earth. That was a bad plan. Okay, now it's time for my act, but I will warn that this segment contains some brief graphic descriptions of violence against women. That other way, let's get funky with Act 2. Forty-five years ago this month, the greatest streak in music history came to an end. Between 1972 and 1977, Stevie Wonder wrapped up a landmark creative run of five back-to-back brilliant albums. 
Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, Fulfilling This First Finale, and Songs in the King of Life. That's one masterpiece per year. Amazing. He closed out with one last victory lap. In March of 77, he released Sir Duke as a single. By May, it topped the charts. It was a fitting crowning achievement. One titan of American culture saluting another. All these years later, I'm still floored whenever I hear it, thus proving its central thesis. Great music perseveres. Forty-five years before Sir Duke was topping the charts, the titular figure was in the middle of a legendary run of his own. By 1932, Duke Ellington had already reshaped the course of jazz history. Behind his piano at the Cotton Club, he created a defining sound of the decade. That year, he released one of his best-known tracks, It Don't Mean a Thing. Just one more classic by the jazz giant. Forty-five years before Duke Ellington's reign, Michael Maybick began his own five-part streak. It would turn out to be his most endearing handiwork. Though, in terms of goodwill brought to the world, it is a polar opposite of Wendell Ellington. While I love it, I fear Sir Duke got it wrong. From Duke Ellington's vantage, the name Michael Maybrick was as associated with musical excellence as Stevie Wonder's is to us. It seems impossible that a musician with such a cultural footprint could vanish into a musical footnote. Yet, it has already happened. Maybrick's name has returned to the shadows. Perhaps that is where it belongs. Michael Maybrick spent most of his life in the spotlight. As one of Victorian England's biggest stars, peers billed him as a genius in the lineage of Milton, Tennyson, and Shakespeare. His talent spilled into the careers of some of the most celebrated artists of the turn of the century. Friends and performing partners, operatic composers Gilbert and Solomon, released songs he wrote. Clark Gable incorporated his melodies into acting roles. Passages of James Joyce Ulysses were inspired by his life and work. The man who owes the biggest debt to Maybrick was Duke Ellington. Manager Irving Mills only signed Ellington after hearing him cover a Maybrick composition. Additionally, Ellington's first single, 1927's Black and Tan Fantasy, creatively interwove jazz improvisation and motifs from Maybrick's 1892 hymnal, The Holy City. Everyone in Ellington's audience would have understood the reference. It is hard to overstate how massively popular the Holy City was in its time. Is that Charleston, the Holy City? Represent. <laughs> Not only was it the best selling song of the whole 19th century, it held the record for most pirated sheet music in the world for five more decades. Artists as varied as Mahala Jackson, Loretta Lynn, and Charlotte Church have all covered the ballad. For our purpose, The Stranger's Take was the Wiggles version of their 2013 album, <laughs> Go Santa Go. In light of Maybrook's other activities, it's an interesting choice. I bet it is the only children's Christmas album to feature credits by England's most infamous serial killer. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to your King. From 1887 to the fall of 1888, an unidentified maniac terrorized London's Whitechapel district, brutally mutilating at least five women. Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. The killer tarned officers of Scotland Yard in a series of letters, 
reveling in gruesome details and depraved misogyny. The letters also gave the culprit his iconic moniker, Jack the Ripper. The mystery of Jack the Ripper continues to confound criminologists and armchair detectives alike. Which is weird, because people have known who did it since the crime was going on. Among the elite, it was an open secret that Michael Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. He can be placed in Whitechapel every night of a killing. All of the killings were a few minutes or even seconds walk from Toynbee Hall, a Masonic lodge that Maybrick was a member of. Additionally, a corpse was discovered on a street bordering his vacation home. One suspected corpse was identified as Lily Vaz, a maid for an undisclosed master in the Isle of Wight. She did not tell a family who hired her because of his celebrity status. It just so happens that Maybrick was a famous master who lived at the Isle of Wight, who hired a maid shortly before Lily Vase disappeared. While Jack the Ripper was never spotted in the act, there were credible sightings of him preparing for the killings. The day before Jack mailed a letter to the police commissioner, a man came into the precinct asking for the commissioner's address. Maybrick matched the description of that man. A witness gave a sketch of the man who accompanied the soon-to-be-dead Elizabeth Stride to an alley. The picture bears a striking resemblance to Maybrick. The Ripper's letters similarly point to Maybrick's involvement. Both the Ripper and Maybrick said they hated stamps. They hated stamps? Yeah. Like postage stamps? That's a weird gripe to have yeah. <laughs> among your other things, but okay. Yeah. Out of the 28,000 streets in London, the Ripper claimed he resided on Conduit Street, the same street where Maybrick had a vacation home. Beyond his content, the letter's stylistic handwriting ties Maybrick to the Ripper. Both had the quirky habit of interchangeably replacing S's with F's, adding swirly spurs to the bottoms of S's, and underlying the capital letter of each sentence's opening word. Yet the biggest clue from the letters was on the envelope's front. In the 1880s, large-scale domestic travel was a privilege few could afford or needed. For the Ripper to send letters all over the aisle, he must have had one of the few occupations that required such extensive travel. It would have to be something like Top of my head here, a nationally renowned musician. That's a good choice. I would yeah. go with that. Amazingly, one musician's tour schedule always corresponded to locations where Jack mailed out his taunts. On October 8th, when Jack wrote for Birmingham, Maybrick was scheduled to play in Birmingham. On October 24th, when Jack wrote for Bromley, Maybrick was in Bromley. On November 8th, when Jack wrote from London, Maybrick was in London. And so forth for stops in Glasgow, Liverpool, and London again. By the 1890s, the last few letters were coming out of Marlborough, an isolated community where Maybrick left for retirement. If that's not enough to convince you, try this one on. Decades after his death, excavators discovered a watch buried underneath his house, inscribed with the initials of the five murder victims and the phrase, I am Jack. Huh, that could be relevant. Uh, I think I'm convinced now. <laughs> uh, that might have done it for me. Okay. Well, you know, even if Maybrick was not Jack the Ripper, he still sucks. <laughs> he absolutely murdered his brother, James, and framed his sister-in-law, Florence, for the crime. Florence Maybrick spent the rest of her life in prison for a crime it would have been impossible for her to commit. While Maybrick continued to tour as the best-selling musician of the 19th century. So you got all this evidence. Nobody did anything about this? Well, yeah, you're right. The evidence against Maybrick is pretty stacked. And rather quickly, the police figured out who was responsible, which is precisely why they could not say who it was. What? Depending on who you ask, Freemasons are now either a beer-swinging social club or the maniacal cabal secretly orchestrating all of humanity. Quite the toss-up there. You know, you go either way. Way. Yep. Back in the late Victorian era, the group had legitimate political sway. The London chief of police, court solicitors, and nearly all members of the royal family belonged to the organization. Maybrick himself was a high-ranking member of six Masonic lodges, including one 
attended by then Prince of Wales. Part of the initiation is vowing to the Masonic Code an allegiance to protect fellow brothers at all costs, including letting them get away with murder. Leveraging his celebrity status and Masonic membership, Maybrick took advantage of this allegiance. Jack the Ripper splattered his crime scene with Masonic imagery. In each instance, the victim's throats were slashed, their intestines ripped out their torso, and cast over their shoulder. Any metal, like rings or coins, was stripped from the body and laid at the feet. Someone familiar with masonry would immediately recognize this as ritualistic punishment for betraying the organization. Other references were more overt. Jack slashed two V-shaped marks on Catherine Eddowes' cheeks. Her body was then placed in the middle of a square, a morbid reenactment of the mason's main symbol, the compass in a square. When the police pieced together that Jack was a mason, Maybach's role in the killing was obvious. Senior officials then purposely sabotaged the evidence and bungled inquiries to protect a member of the rank. They could either arrest the high-profile Mason and throw the organization in the scandal or sacrifice five innocent lives for their reputation. They made the wrong choice. Maybrook lived the rest of his days as a free man, but social prior. Tellingly, F.E. Weatherly, Maybrook's writing partner for more than 30 years and the co-creator of The Holy City, did not mention him once in his autobiography. That is as glaring an oversight as if Paul McCartney forgot about John Lennon or if Sir Mix-a-Lot never shouted out bets. While contemporaries refused to speak his name, his identity still lingers. His role in helping discover Duke Ellington was both his most enduring and most tangential achievement. Arguably, his sociopathic side career has left a bigger musical impact. If Maybach had been arrested, his sins would be long forgotten just one of many criminals who preyed upon the vulnerable in the Victorian age. With no known suspect behind him, Jack the Ripper has become a faceless monster, reduced only to depravity. Relishing in the crime's gory imagery, provocateurs as varied as Bob Dylan, to Judas Priest, to LL Cool J, to the Far Side, to the Animal Collective, have compared themselves to the cultural boogeyman. Most of these did not make a dent on the charts. The most overt reference to the chart was Link Ray's 1959 menacing instrumental, Jack the Ripper. The sinister tune, if evil cackle, dying woman screams, and all, climbed to a respectable 63. Only one top 10 hit has ever name-checked the infamous alias. Among the many phrases spouted out in Reunion's number 8 novelty, Life is a Rock, one of them was a passing nod to the Whitechapel slings. The closest a number 1 has ever come to mentioning the case was by Cindy Lauper. The title of her immaculate 1984 devotional ballad, and one of my favorite songs, Time After Time, was taken from a 1979 movie of the same name. The film stars Malcolm McDowell as a time-traveling H.G. Wells hunting down Jack the Ripper. If Maybrook actually had jumped into a time machine, he would surely be disappointed to learn that he is no longer a household name. And I imagine relieved. Okay, Nate, good story. It's a ripping yarn, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> We're about out of time. Do you have a, a little closing story for us today? Why, yes, I do, Dad. As you have alluded multiple times about the show, <laughs> um, one of my favorite guilty pleasures is gloriously campy TV series, Unsolved Mysteries. Every week, host Robert Stack invited viewers to help him solve a mystery. So, in his honor, I'm going to invite all listeners to do the same. It's one I'm sure they'd be interested in solving themselves. A case begins in Berlin during the collapse of the Nazi High Command. For the past four years, the regime has financed their failing war effort by looting assets off their victims. Any gold recovered is melted in the bouillon and transferred to covert warehouses across Europe. As Russian and American forces drew towards the capital, Germany decided 
to hide their ill-gotten wealth underground. Adolf Hitler personally ordered his private secretary, Martin Bormann, to bury a hoard of thousands of dollars, 100 bars of gold, and the Fuhrer's personal diamonds, a chain of priceless jewels nicknamed the Tears of the Wolf. Somewhere in the Bavarian Alps, the treasure is stored, waiting to be discovered. To protect the location, Bormann comes up with a backup plan. He encodes the treasure's coordinates into the melody of composer Gottfried Fredelin, March Impromptu. Bormann deploys a military chaplain to smuggle the annotated sheet music through the bombed-out streets of Berlin. The young scout never arrives to make his delivery in Munich. Confident that his message will get out, Bormann swallows a cyanide capsule. The key goes to his grave. Seventy years later, no one has figured out how to decipher the score, let alone found the treasure. Though, many have tried. In 2013, Dutch filmmaker Leon Geisen claims to have cracked the case. His breakthrough all stems from the line, Woe mightest don Seiten strikt, or translated, Where Matthew plucks strings. He believes this was a reference to Milton Watt, the small German enclave home, then renowned violinist Matthias Klotz. Geisen then looked to see if there were any notable features of Marlwood that could relate back to the song. It turned out that all of the notes revealed a schematic diagram of the city. To his surprise, he noticed that particular notes matched stations along the train line. The final annotation, in den Tanz, or in the dance, therefore would refer to the train station's terminus. Putting all this together, Geisen is certain that the cache is buried somewhere near the previous site of the railway's buffers. Over the decades, the long-since-demolished railway buffers were replaced with an army training camp. The government has forbidden treasure hunters to dig up so close to military base. Geisen's theory has never been confirmed. That means the gold is still somewhere out there. Have a listen for the clues and get your shovel ready. Maybe you can help solve a mystery. (laughs) 